Welcome to Grow Your Influence Tree with your host, Leonard Kim. This is the show especially for those that want to be among the top influencers of the world. We'll help you build your brand, tell the most compelling story, build your reputation and grow your audience, and attract the top clients and customers. Listen to the experts. Think like they do, and you'll be on your way. Now, here's Leonard Kim. Hey everyone, Leonard Kim here, and welcome to another episode of Grow Your Influence Street. Today we have Lars B. Ambo on the line with us, and we're going to be discussing a few interesting things and to see where things go. But before getting into that, let me just tell you about this last week. In this last week, I did something insane. Um, Lars, have you ever moved anywhere before? Oh yeah, <laughs> moved around quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did one of those things. I moved, and it was insane. It broke down every single thing. About me, really, because um, I don't know why I didn't hire a mover. I probably should have, but I didn't, and yeah. I moved boxes <laughs> back and forth. So we I, we took five trips in my car, and I think six boxes fit in each trip. So I was packing 30 boxes, taking them downstairs, then um, taking them back upstairs to a new place, or putting them in the car, That's taking the them back upstairs to a new place, then emptying them all out, then organizing all that. Yeah. All that's not even finished yet. So, and, um, I was going to say, it's funny how moving is always like, you think it's going to be a certain amount of work and then it ends up being like five, 10 times more than you anticipate. Like every time, every time, it doesn't matter how much or little stuff you have to, it's just (laughs) how it goes. And and, and we didn't bring furniture. We didn't bring a single piece of furniture. So that makes it even like, why is it so tiring if we didn't bring furniture? And like, yeah, uh, I've been sitting here like exhausted all week trying to recover. We slept on the floor for a few days and got a mattress from Sin Sleep and was like, oh, yay, finally it came. We were down Sunday, didn't get that till <laughs> Tuesday. So Friday, Sunday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, we slept on the floor. Like, I hit this oh, critical yeah. exhaustion point. And how me and you, yeah. uh, we really connected is like over um, quitting smoking, right? Like, how to get over yes, smoking yes. and all that. Yes, that's what we got to talking on. Yeah. yeah. And then How's that going? in the last last week, <laughs> like I, I saw one of my friends smoking on Saturday and I'm like, Oh my god, that looks so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. It's 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 a journey. Like it, it really is a journey. Like I, I didn't smoke as long uh as, as you did, so I mean I guess I'm kinda lucky. My my dad smoked most of his life and quit, I believe in his thirties, if I'm not mistaken, but I only smoked for I I started and quit like the same year. I mean, it was around the time of the recession, uh, so it was like oh. when everybody was smoking. <laughs> so yeah, that's I a good time to smoke. I, recession. Yeah, yeah. It was it was like when everybody was smoking because it was everybody was was uh, stressed out. So I started around then, and I, I I never got like too bad. I was about maybe like uh, a half a pack to a pack every couple of days. So I wasn't like a chain smoker, but I definitely was like regularly doing it. And then it just got to a point where after a while, like I had, I had hit asthma early on in life, but I had mostly outgrown it and it started coming back a little bit (laughs) and it was just kind of like, okay, maybe, maybe I should just taper off and figure out another way to handle this. But I mean, really like just smoking a year, it still took me like at least I would say two, if not three years after that to not have like any cravings at all. It it takes like a long time for it to completely just kind of switch off because you just get wired for it and you don't even... It's not even a conscious thing. It's crazy. So more power yeah. to you, man. I mean, I, I know I know people that have smoked as long as you have and just quit cold turkey and made it work. And then I know people that have like relapsed a year later too. So I mean, if you can do it, that's I mean, that's awesome. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, like anything you read says, the nicotine's completely out your system in seventy two hours. And here I'm sitting here, yeah. a, month, a month and a half, like outside or done smoking, and I'm like. Why do I still want it? Like two days ago, I would have like died for a cigarette. Like I would be like, here's my entire soul. It's giving away, right? Like, yeah. I was, I yeah. Was like a total mess from the move. My whole body was exhausted. Like I, you, you know, when yeah. you had that mental stat, uh, state where you just keep going and going and going and you can't go anymore and you can't like yeah, comprehend information. You can't communicate. You can't do anything like that. That was me a few days ago. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like you're, it's like you're sitting outside of your life watching it go past you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally you're just watching it fall apart. You're like, oh yeah, I yeah. see you crashing that train again. Yeah, 
and you're doing it again, and you know you need to stop, but you don't know how to stop. Here, just go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it just, it really took a lot of, like, conscious eval. It was like a, ba- it was like a, kind of like a balance between, like, consciously evaluating how I was living, what I was doing, the things that, like, led up to, <clears throat> to me having the cravings, and just kind of, and just how I was living beforehand that maybe contributed to the stress that was already there. Uh, right. And just kind of like trying to figure, like pass those things out and figure out what it was that I could do to just kind of lower my stress in general in life. And then, and then balancing that between just kind of like emptying my head at those times and like not, and, and, and not, or, not evaluating anything <laughs> and just kind of like being in, with the feelings and the, and the cravings and all of that and, and just kind of riding the wave and, and meditation kind of helped me quite a bit there along with just kind of really consciously trying to slow down my life. And I think like I told you um, on Twitter, I, the, 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 and it's something you hear like, a, like all the time now about the, the, the whole psychology of slowing down. And there's been like a few TED talks about it and, and et cetera, but it's something that sounds counterintuitive on face value. But I found that when I start consciously slowing down my life and even limiting like the amount of time that I work versus the time that I just allot to myself to just, kind of do nothing or just, or just feel good or do something else mm-hmm. that wasn't smoking. Um, I, my product, my productivity actually increased. And that's like the, it's, it, it feels so counterintuitive when you're so used to being in that go, go, go mode. But I, it, the weird thing is, is it's true. And like everything everybody says about, about slowing down ends up being <clears throat> accurate. And it's because, I mean, what you just said is kind of what is what happens if you're, I mean, and, and quitting smoking, I think, compounds it. But, I mean, if, you, if you're just constantly trying to grind, uh, you, you, you hit burnout a lot faster. And then I think the recovery period that you need where you don't really get anything done ends up being even longer than it would have been if you would just allow, allowed yourself, like, more downtime in the process, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, think, I think what would have been nice is, like, let's say the place was like, oh, you can move in your stuff, like, a week early. So we could go once yeah. every day and take, like, four or five boxes. And, like, spread that, you know, that 24-hour um, move into, like, you know, like a whole week's event. Then I think it would have been a lot yeah. easier. I don't think I'd be so angry. I don't think I'd be so frustrated. Like, a few days yeah. ago, like, yeah. I think it was, like, maybe Tuesday. Wait, what did they say? They're saying maybe Monday. Like, I was in the meeting, and then in that meeting... Uh, we were coming up with some things, and I, I came out with an idea, and I was just talking about my idea, and then someone turns to me, and he's like, Leonard, who are you arguing with? I'm like, I'm not arguing. He's like, you're arguing with someone, but no one's arguing with you. Who are you arguing with? I'm like, I'm not arguing. <laughs> he's like, it sure sounds like you uh, are. <laughs> and it's like when you like move so quickly like that and you have so many things going on and you have burnout, you don't even know what you're doing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you're starting yeah, yeah, you start exactly. arguments with no one. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I know. It's, 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 it's crazy. And it's like the, I think, I think coming off of any addiction um, can compound it for sure. And I mean, I think, oh, yeah. so I think it's like even more important to find ways to give yourself, I mean, almost like give yourself more downtime, I think, than you think that you need uh, in a time like this. Because, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, like, you, at the end of the day, you, you, you've got to live with yourself, right? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, and, and you've only got one life to live. And, I mean, there's all this stuff that I, I mean, I understand as a creative, passionate person myself, there's all this stuff you want to be doing um, all the time, especially if you kind of get used to, like, like, a routine of it. But I, I think it's really, really important to just monitor and take care of the self and be sure that you're just, you're setting aside time for yourself to just relax and take downtime and do that very regularly. I would say like on a daily, even more than once a day basis if you can, because I mean, it's just like you're, you're going to end up getting more done in the long term, A, and B, you're going to end up feeling better about where you're at in life. I think in general, if you can just kind of live, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's such a, and it's sometimes easier to see after the fact, after we go through the burnout period over and over and over again, it's something I feel like, learn all the time over and over again myself because if I if I'm really wrapped up in something I can be a total workaholic too on top of uh, everything else and it's something I've had to learn over and over and over again and I'm still kind of learning in my 30s to just kind of meter things out give yourself time and put your put yourself and your internal needs and your own soul 
first and foremost in your life, regardless of anything else that you feel you need to do or feel you need to be working on, and then let everything else kind of flow from there and to kind of just operate from an internal point of peace as much as possible, and then your output ends up being so much better. But it, it, it feels so counterintuitive to, to, to get into that mindset when you're used to one that's kind of the opposite of that. And I've been there, <laughs> so I definitely empathize with where you're at. So, but hey, at least yeah. you're moved. So, I mean, at least that, that's one thing that's done now, hopefully. Yeah, that's good. Like, for example, what you just said right there, like, um, even throughout the move, I was, like, uh, you know, sleeping late, sleeping on the floor, like, not really taking care of myself. And then I I feel that it kind of, like, built up upon itself and, like, became bigger and bigger and bigger. But, like, two nights ago, I went to bed at, like, 8 p.m., right? And I just slept through the morning. I'm like, I I can't deal with this anymore. I just need to shut down and reset. And then when I woke up, I was like, Wow. I feel almost healed. I could think again. I have some more clarity. So I took that step back, kind of like what you said, and just slept super early. Um, didn't yeah. didn't you know, find inner yeah. peace yet? But I mean, yeah. it, and I think, I think it's I think it's figuring I think it's figuring out a way to in, to to uh, implement that like internal healing and downtime into your daily routine. That's that's really important. And I think I think we're kind of we're at a really interesting point in society right now where I feel people in general are kind of starting to wake up to these concepts a little bit more than they have in the past. Uh, like, like I said, I know there's been various speakers that have talked about the psychology of slowing down and what it does for workload. And then you have like some companies um, in Europe and other places now that are, that are embracing the idea of a four day work week. Cause they found that that actually makes people, it, it's, it sounds counterintuitive, but it actually makes a lot of companies more productive when they give when they give their employees less hours and they're able to do more in in a smaller amount of time because they have more time to themselves, for whether it's downtime or vacation time or whatever the rest of the time to recharge. And I think that's something that's kind of been lost in certain aspects of American society that we're starting to figure out now. And and I think it's like a culmination of things, like kind of where like the the point that social media is at versus and, and just kind of the, we're, we're almost like, I mean, we're pretty much in a similar state to where we were economically, too, as well as a lot of people just working way too much or way too little as we were prior to the recession. And I think we're kind of at this point nationally now where people are finally saying, like, starting to wake up to this and saying, like, hey, enough is enough. We really need to be taking care of ourselves better. <laughs> and I, and I, so, I mean, I think it's a societal thing as much as an individual thing to overcome that we just kind of have to get to a point where we're realizing that, if we don't take care of ourselves, if we're just working, working, grinding, grinding, and, and working till we burn out over and over and over again, it creates bad business, it creates bad uh, psycholo- psychological norms, and it doesn't do a whole lot for us as a society either. So it's kind of one of those things that, I mean, it kind of goes back to Gandhi saying, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think this is one of those things where if everybody slows down a little bit and takes a little bit more time to ourselves, we'll start seeing a much kinder, gentler, uh, more, more, more uh, egalitarian society than we have right now as well. And maybe that's idealistic of me, but I, I kind of see that shift happening. I don't know if you've seen anything similar since you're kind of in a more <laughs> tumultuous place than I am with putting smoking. But uh, <laughs> well, I, I think I see similar things that you're seeing too, because like yeah. studies are coming out, and then all these studies have these counterintuitive responses to them, where it's like, oh look. If people have more rest, if they have more break times, if they take naps, they're more productive. If they're not working a full yeah. hour shift, they're more productive. And like you, you know how America's like built on capitalism for the, and for these business owners, they're like, what? For me to have my employee yeah. take less time off at working, there's no way that's going to generate more revenue. But study after study after no. study after study. Just keep saying this yeah. is the thing that people need and this is what's happening. Yeah. And if uh, you look at the whole entire culture of everything now, it looks like things are moving more towards how do people have a better way of life. Like one aspect of it is upper management. We're kicking out the old, um, <clears throat> the old dinosaurs who ran <laughs> companies and putting in new leaders. Um, we're adding yeah. in more diversity. We're becoming a lot more inclusive. And then studies are also yeah. showing that, like, you know, inclusive teams that have diverse uh, members are, as part of them are actually bringing in more revenue. They're working better together. They're thinking of more different various situations. 
they're connecting more overall. And all this is really just, you know, driving more value into the market. And it's kind of funny because, yeah. like, people, like, would think, oh, this isn't going to work. Then it does. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's one of those things that, that, I, that I think I feel like America's a little bit, like, like we're figuring it out. We're, I think we're starting to figure it out now, thank God. But, like, we're a little bit late to the game on it. It's like you look at um, just economic stability numbers, both economic stability numbers and just overall quality of life uh, metrics. And Scandinavia, just across the board, is just, like, kicking our butts in, like, all of these areas. They have, they have a much more stable economy we are than we do. And everybody there that's either a worker or, or a CEO or whatever they are has a much more, like, stable, well-off, uh, higher quality of life as a result. And, like, they're generally, they generally consider themselves happier. And I think these are, like, some of the reasons is they've built a system where it's still capitalism, it's still a meritocracy, but they make sure everybody has the same starting point and everybody has enough of their basic needs, needs met that they're not constantly, like, neurotically trying to overwork. And I think that's something that people are just now, like, starting to figure out in America um, and, and I think, I think there's, there's been some really interesting change in our hiring, uh, practices lately too. Like, I don't know if you saw this thing that it just came out like this last week where Google, Apple, IBM, and I think several other companies are finally, uh, dumping college requirements from most of their, most of their, uh, their hiring processes, which I find kind of curious that it took this long. Cause if I'm not mistaken, Google had a, cause I mean, all Google does is data, right? And they had a study based on their own empirical data about, I think about a decade ago now, that showed when you hire, kind of back to your whole diversity point, when you, when you hire a diverse companies, and, and they use Scandinavia as the model for this too because they do a lot of this over there, but when companies hire a more diverse workforce, not only in terms of, of ethnic background and life background and all that, but an education background, when you hire equally like people that, that went to college versus people that are self-taught and then kind of have a mix of both of those, that also builds better productivity in companies and gives you more, more varying perspectives and all of that, too. And Google had this data, like, a long time ago, and it's, it's funny that it took them even till like, now, almost 10 years later, to say, okay, maybe we should actually implement this into our hiring practices. But, I mean, I guess, <laughs> like you said, some, some people just, in, in, the, in the upper echelons, I think both of, both of business and politics in our country are so, so stuck in just this is the way things have always been done that even when they see the evidence showing them that it needs to change, it, it's all, it takes like somebody else to come in and change it, which is, I think, what we're starting to see happening now. But, yeah, yeah, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> and, um, yeah, what you do is you bring up great points, and these are things that we really have already, the data, but it's really being implemented right now. Let's talk more about yeah. this after the commercial break. Uh, where can people find you sure, online, man. Lars? So my website is LarsDamble.com. Uh, you can find everything else that I'm doing on and offline there. Perfect. And we'll be back after this commercial break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Want to improve your health, business, and life just by listening to a radio show? Well, we can at least move you in the right direction. Listen for Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. Each week, Allison will speak with amazing guests and find out what's changed their lives and how they are changing the lives of others. From beauty to health to business and personal relationships, we're here to inspire you to live your life of passion. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers channel hear the stories be motivated be inspired join us today voice america influencers
This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Larry Kim here with Lawrence B. Amble. If you haven't heard earlier, uh, what we did is we kind of discussed the different things that go on in regards to slowing down, how taking more care of yourself actually increases productivity, and how this trend is moving throughout the uh, um, companies as well. One thing that uh, companies are recently doing, according to the data that Google has collected, is that companies like Facebook, Google, and so forth, they're kind of dropping their college requirements for their positions that they have at their jobs, uh, according to Lars and what he said earlier. He said the study came out about last week. For me, that's pretty exciting because I'm sitting here going, oh, yeah, um, you know, you don't have that college degree. <laughs> you can't really find a lot of positions out there. But, you know, if Google and these leading companies are going to change the pave the way, then, hey, guess what? People like me who don't have that college education can be like, wow, this opens up the doors to many, many opportunities. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of an odd uh, odd paradigm. Like I said, it's it's, it, it's for, to me personally, it's odd that it's taken this long for this to happen because really – you look at a lot of these, I mean, Apple, uh, everything Virgin, uh, Microsoft. I mean, these companies are all founded by people that either didn't even go to college or were dropouts themselves. And then you look at these historically, too. There have been, uh, I don't remember the name off the top of my hand, but if you go to the website called College Dropouts Hall of Fame, dot com or dot org. I don't know, if you if you Google College Dropouts Hall of Fame, you'll find it. And it basically shows like a long list of people throughout history that were massive, massive success stories that, that were either that, that didn't go to college, whether they were self-taught or learned some other way. And there have been, I mean, there have been everything from like astronauts to CEOs, you name it, that didn't go to college. So it's just it's one of these things where I think it's not to downplay college at all. I think, but I think different people learn in different ways. And I've always been very, very a very autodidactic, rapid learner in my entire life. And I did go to college for a couple of years around the time of the recession, um, which was around the time that I smoked, uh, I went to the Art Institute Hollywood for a couple of years. And it was, it was the, about the second year of that that I dropped out because I, I saw, it, basically what I went for was web design primarily. And I learned photography, photography and a few other things as well. But I'd already been working as a creative professional since about 2001 prior to this, doing, uh, doing visual design and other mediums. I just hadn't gone full into web design yet, but I'd been studying it on my own. And it hit the point in me for college where the college curriculum, and this was actually, I, went, I did a year at the Art Institute Hollywood, and then I transferred to the Art Institute Seattle and did a year there. And it wasn't just the Art Institute, it was colleges in general there. The curriculums were basically five years behind, whereas I was looking I was looking for five years ahead of where we were. This was right on the cusp of everything switching to HTML5, uh, and, and the, whole, the whole landscape of the web was completely changing. And I was just like, well, I could continue on in school and learn a lot of this stuff that they're teaching me that's, uh, that's going to be outdated like yesterday, or I can take what I've learned from here and go teach myself the rest of this stuff and, and look at where we're going five years from now. So I, I made that choice, and I talked to uh, one, of the, one of my favorite professors at school that was the creator of Blue from Blue's Clues. His name is Seth Zeichner. He was a fantastic teacher. And he himself, uh, when I talked to him about this, he was just like, yeah, you should, you've done two years. You should just drop out and easily teach yourself from here. And all people are going to care about really your portfolio, and I've found that to be true. Even places that say that they want a college degree, if you have a good, good enough portfolio, good enough work experience, you can demonstrate you know, uh, creative thinking abilities in an interview, they don't really care if you have a college degree or not. It's, it's more about you know, how, how you learn and, and, how, and how you're able to do the work. So it's, 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 it's odd to me that it's taken this long for them to, for them to formally drop it out of the... Out of the uh, the requirements, because it seems to me like it's kind of just been a formality prior to this, but I, I do feel like it's a good, uh, a good, a good thing to do going forward. Because, like you said, it, it opens up 
career path to people that up to this point maybe would have never felt like they had one because they just don't learn the way that traditional people that maybe go to college do learn. And I think there's good aspects of both of those learning, but if you just have solely a group of one or the other, you end up getting group think that just kind of thinks in circles and undoes itself all the time. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just interesting to see things to see things shifting that I've kind of been advocating for for a while now myself. I don't know if you feel similarly yourself. It sounds like maybe you do. Well, yeah, I, I, I know what it's like to, to, like, be a part of, like, group think or something like that. I mean, I've been a part of it myself, and it's kind of interesting how, yeah. like, the more and more people who get into a group, the more and more people who feel the same way. And it's like yeah. the more and more people who could be absolutely wrong. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think, I think it's not, it's not, it's, it, when it, when it comes to sustainability, uh, and I would say this is true for society in general, as well as politics, as well as business. Um, it's, it's not even necessarily about right versus wrong when it comes to group think. It's just that if you have, a bunch of people in charge of things that are all solely thinking the same way, it's going to inevitably, it's going to inevitably only serve that group's needs because they're not getting enough outside perspective from others. And I think that's the detriment where it kind of, it sends everything into kind of, I think what we're seeing a lot of right now, or what I see anyway in the, in the present day IT industry where there's, where there's very similar parallels to kind of what happened in the 90s with the dot-com bubble, where there's all these, like, bubble, like bubbles of groupthink that are only thinking, like, five years out and five years out after that and five years out after that, and, and there aren't enough people thinking sustainably that there's all these companies that are crashing and burning every five years in this boom-bust cycle that we see happening, again, very similar to what happened prior to the last recession, and I really think a lot of that comes down to the fact that we've let group think bubbles for better or worse, because, I mean, they just kind of happen, but we've, we've let them happen at the same time, kind of run the show for too long. And I really feel like now we're starting to see, both in politics and in business, a lot, a lot of people that used to feel like their voices were more marginalized standing up. And then you have, we have so much more um, data-driven research now, too, that's showing that a lot of these marginalized voices have been right all along. And we're also looking, I think, outside of our own borders of the country a lot more to other models that have worked elsewhere, like I said previously in Europe and elsewhere. So, I mean, I think we're waking up, but it's one of those things that it's like, if we don't wake up fast enough, we'll end, we'll end up just like heading for another, I think, massive economic crash like we had previously. And it's, and it's funny because if you look at, um, and I, I think there's, I think there's, this is applicable to business as well, but if you look at presidential cabinets historically, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? He was the guy that pretty much led us out of the Great Depression and, and basically gave us like decades of economic prosperity. After that, we had we had plenty of other problems, but I mean, he, he led us into our most stable economic period. He's also the only president in U.S. history that had that his cabinet was basically half college dropouts, and he's mm-hmm. the only like every other president since him has pretty much had only like college grads. And I think it's kind of led to a group think, a similar group think in government <laughs> to what we've seen in business. And I think people yeah. now are kind of studying this stuff more historically and seeing what's happening and being like, oh, maybe, maybe it's not about, like I said, it's not even about right or wrong. It's just we have to be able to have opposing voices working together in, in, in a constructive way, because otherwise we just end up like going down one person's vision and one person's vision will never be what's best for everybody, you know? So it's just... Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it's I mean, like, if you think about, like, uh, like, a high school dropout versus a high school graduate, like, they think two completely different ways because one decided to yeah. do something to drop out while the other did decide yeah. to keep going forward. And then the same with college. Like, the college dropout thinks differently than someone who graduated college. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, having well, those different, opposing different people, views. Different people learn different ways, and different yeah. and those, and I think those different mindsets come come up with different ways of solving problems. And I think both are valid, and that's just the thing. But I, but I think if you just have, let one or the other solely try to operate things, that's where you run into problems. Because we're all at the risk of sounding kind of hokey. We are all individuals. We kind of like Mister Rogers likes to say, we all we all are special in our own way. And I think we really have to get back to a point. It, 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 as a country and as a society and business and otherwise where we where we see that and we start treating each other we, we start hearing each other out more you know and we and we're able to communicate more effectively and have and have completely 
differing opinions on things, but still be able to to find and, and realize the solution as opposed to just like everybody kind of screaming over each other until one person is just kind of ruling everybody. And there, I've also been looking into more lately um, democratizing business structures, which is another thing that's been really interesting to me lately. Uh, with that, that, uh, there's a guy out of Massachusetts, Professor Richard Wolf, who's been talking this quite a bit, and I'm still learning a lot about it, but I think it's a really interesting concept. There's a, there's a giant corporation in Spain called Mondragon that operates this way, where there's basically no CEO, and the company is just run as a democracy. So everybody, whether they're a worker or a board member or whatever, has, has a more or less equal say. And the companies are the companies basically collectively run as, a, as opposed to just like one or two or three people having the final say and everything. And I think that's a really interesting concept, too. And it could potentially lead towards more sustainable business if we start thinking to restructure some of uh, our American companies that way because it, it eliminates that 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 uh, whole structure where just like one or two people can form like their own little bubble <laughs> and then yeah. run everybody in that direction, whether it's good or bad or otherwise, because they're only surrounded by the same people all the time. So it's, these are the things that I'm thinking about these days. <laughs> so. Well, one thing is it's good to even have like everyone just hop into a, an environment and working together but then, like, let's say you put in a lot of diversity into that group, too. And then there's, like, one person who's, like, authoritative-sounding, mean-sounding, and things like that. And he's leading the meeting, yeah. or she's leading the meeting. Like, a lot of voices might be scared to go speak up what they really feel, too. Like, I know I've been in meetings where I'm scared to speak up. And sure, um, sure like, you know, like, if that, that overpowering type of person's in charge... Like, sometimes those yeah. great ideas still don't come out, and it's figuring out ways to make yeah. sure those great ideas do come out so we don't get stuck. Yeah, and that's where I think, like, running a workplace as a democracy makes a lot of sense because it's, it's funny, and it's a point that, that uh, Richard Wolf, who I mentioned previously, he brings this up all the time. It's like we, we, ce- we, we celebrate democracy so much in so many areas of our of our society and it's kind of you know so much of what our country was based on and i think there's there's plenty of arguments to be made we're not exactly living in a functional democracy right now but i think it's at the heart of what every american what what the majority of americans want america to be right and it's and it's funny how we haven't applied that same mindset to our business when there's really no good reason not to and i think everything you just mentioned if we, if we structured businesses more democratically where everybody has an equal voice I think it would eliminate a lot of those, a lot of those problems, and I mean there there's 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 provable models again, mostly in other countries, Mondragon being the most prominent ones that I would bring up. Uh, that American companies like like GM and and GE and several other prominent companies have gone over to work with them and study their model because it's it's fascinating, it's very sustainable, and it's one of those things where, yeah, why not run a company democratically? We all have to work, we all have to make this product, and obviously there's going to be certain people that are going to be in charge of production or design or whatever it is, but if everybody has an equal say, it, I think it would just eliminate a lot of the, a lot of the ails and, and, and uh, low morale and a lot of other things that we see in this, to, in this basically totalitarian, to, or totalitarian, excuse me, work structure that we've kind of embraced in, in American capitalism. And it's, it's, it's just one of those things like, yeah, why not? Because it, it, it seems to me like it would solve, like democracy in general, for all of its issues, tend to solve most of these uh, structural problems because everybody has to say. So why not democratize the workplace as well? It's just kind of, to me, it's a no-brainer. Um, and, I, and I have seen a few companies in the U.S. kind of toying around with the idea, I, and I couldn't say for sure if they're completely structured democratically, but I know, I know I'm sure you're familiar with Valve Software out of, out of Redmond. Um, yeah. I know they have have a model that I'm not completely familiar with, but I know enough about it. Where I think they refer to it as the flat field, where it's kind of it's it's that basic concept where everybody in the company has a direct line to everybody else, and even like you know, nobody nobody is on higher tier in terms of in terms of uh, like say or or priority than Gabe Newell is, and vice versa. Like everybody's able to just have a completely open communication line. There isn't like an authoritarian business structure, and I really. I think I think that just eliminates so many problems, and I think it's something more companies ought to be exploring personally. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm so kind yeah. of excited to see like what everything's going, what's going to like come from all this, and 
where all these different companies are heading and what kind of changes they're going to make and how they're testing and trying new ways to really go out there and improve the future of business because, you know, like we, I, I, I do feel that we really do have to take care of the people and that quality of life, yeah. especially with the new millennial generation, is becoming more of a thing oh, yeah. that people are really seeking out. Like, and the older generation is like, just suck it up, deal with it, work it, push it through. But nowadays, well, they, it's they, more they, like, they, they, they had so much more money than we did, and they don't realize yeah. that. <laughs> like, they, they were rich. Like, people back, would consider back, me rich now, then, but I feel then. more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, b- back then, minimum wages were still were still were still tethered to inflation, and after the '80s happened, that stopped. So, I mean, wages have pretty much been stagnant, but inflation's still been happening, and that's something that I think so, I think some of the older generation, I mean, my parents definitely, and other people that I know, are starting to realize, oh, hey, like it really isn't as easy for you as it was for us, but. It, but there are still a lot of those boomer generation people that just don't get it, that they don't walk in our shoes, and they 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 don't understand that like they could work at like five, six dollars an hour or whatever it was when they were a kid, but that was tied to inflation. So they could still afford like everyday necessities where now you've got, like there was a study that came out recently um, a few months back. Basically there's nowhere in the country now that you can afford a one bedroom apartment working full time at minimum wage. And that's just, that's just, that's just, that's just an indictment of the entire system that we've got right now and a clear sign that it needs to change. And again, you look at some countries like, like Ultra, Scandinavia, and some other parts of the world that have a more stable system, and they and, and they basically, I mean, they're 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 a little bit more they're a little bit more functional democracies where I think we're a little bit more of an oligarchy, and that's part of the problem. But I think the other the other the, the crux of that issue is people just coming together and realizing, hey, we need to both help each other out, but also create a system that fundamentally aids each other as well. And I think that's where we're going to be. It's funny because, like, everybody right now is, is understandably um, all, all, all arms up in the air and alarmed at the times that we're living in. And I think there's understandable reasons for that with, with Trump in office and everything else. But I also think as I, as I look around and talk to people like you and just everyday people and look at polling numbers nationally and all this data coming out and even, even companies that I may not agree with in a million other areas like Google finally, like, cutting off the, the, the college uh, degree stuff. I just see all these things shifting towards positive. And I really think within the next five to 10 years, we're going to be in a much better place than people see right now, because there's all these people coming together now slowly, but surely and saying, Hey, like these other models work, let's try them. And if, and, and if, and if you guys aren't going to do this, we're going to band together as millennials and just do it on our own. And I think we're seeing more of that. And eventually that's going to become the norm. And I think it'll be faster than people realize right now, even though we're kind of in a, in an interesting place <laughs> as a country right now, but uh, I'm optimistic. I'm, and the more the more of these little things I see coming through and changing, uh, the more I can't help the optimistic because people are waking up to this stuff. And well, we're, we're thank you so much for like sharing all this information with us, Lars. I mean, that gives our audience yeah. a lot of things to really think about, a lot of things to really consider. And um, where can people find you online again? Yeah, LarsBamble.com is my website, and you can find links to all of my uh, social media and other goings on there. Perfect, and thank you so much for hopping onto the show. We really do appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Um, we have another caller coming into the show. Uh, Bradley, welcome onto the show. How are you doing today? Hey, Leonard. How's it going? Doing pretty awesome. Um, so you're over there at Colt Brands. Uh, I went and spoke up at your conference last February up in Bath. Um, if you're yeah. not familiar with what Colt is, Colt's basically uh, Colt is a gathering where uh, they put together uh, the biggest brands out there who have the most cult-like following. Um, do you want to give a little more detail on exactly what a cult brand is? Yeah, 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 for sure. So uh, just just to sort of uh, correctly orient it, uh, the the summit's called the Gathering. Um, and officially, uh, it's the gathering of cult brands, and so it's, it was created and curated by um, a management consulting firm called Cult Collective. So I know that we're throwing around a lot of those words there, but uh, at the end of the day, you did you did join us. It was great to have you up at the gathering last year. And um, you know, from our perspective, um, uh, a cult brand is 
a brand that has been able to uh, successfully um, achieve a stratospherical level of uh, affinity and uh, advocacy from its customers. And so um, some of them, consumer-facing brands would be uh, very obvious to people, um, you know, when you would say, um, you know, some of the ones that uh, have, have been nominated and, and, and won in the past would be, you know, like Zappos.com or, um, you know, Harley-Davidson, um, you know, Red Bull, et cetera. And so those brands, from a consumer's perspective, are very obviously um, have, have achieved, uh, you know, some uh, extremely high level of uh, affinity and advocacy or, or, or another way to say it would be success and um, recognition from their customers. And so, um, you know, what we've done is we've been able to distill down um, a systematic way of profiling, identifying, and then scoring these brands so that um, we were able to generate and create a, 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 a summit that happens annually um, to, to not only celebrate the brand, but uh, also the courageousness of the brand leader behind um, each of, uh, of, of the brands that are represented. Now, one thing that a lot of companies are looking to do is really go out and create that cult-like following because even if you're a beginning company, you know that if you just have 1,000 loyal customers that you're going to be able to make it and you're going to go out there and excel. And that's really what cult is. Cult's being uh, going out and creating that loyal type of following and all the things that um, Brad, Bradley just described. Like, for example, uh, Charity Water, I believe, was a winner of the last award last year or this last year, right? Yeah, they they were they were one of the honoree class. Yeah, and then like um, for all their works that they're doing all around the world, building different um, uh, mining areas or wells so that um, people could have water all across the world, like clean access to water. Like they were able to get a standing ovation from everyone in the room, and that's kind of like what most people really want to do when they really build a business. They want to build something that makes an impact, something that touches people, something that really changes people's lives, and that's kind of like what a cult brand really is. Uh, we have this, uh, there's another gathering that's going to be uh, happening next February, correct? Yep, February 20th to 22nd. Um, you know, if your listeners are interested in checking it out, um, they can find uh, more information at cultgathering.com. Um, all of the interesting, uh, you know, pieces uh, that sort of round out anything that we would talk about today, uh, Leonard, would be found on that, uh, found, found on our website. And then what kind of companies are being honored this uh, upcoming year? Yeah, so, you know, uh, it's been a bit of a process. So every year, uh, you know, we deal with and filter through research and then validate, um, you know, over 600 uh, nominations that come in from attendees, the general public, um, uh, past honorees. um, And so uh, we've been hard at work on our side. Uh, You know, we've recently been in conversations with IBM to help us uh, develop a proprietary system to to do the heavy lifting for us. and so, uh, you know, we've been doing that, um, you know, uh, this year we got uh, just over, like I said, 600 nominations. And so um, progressively we've been whittling that list down. So a few weeks ago, uh, you know, uh, I think about a month and a half ago, we announced the top 50. And then a few weeks ago we announced the top 20. Um, and now we're in a place where, uh, you know, we've actually narrowed down the top eight, which would be considered cult brand honorees. And then uh, we have what's called an emerging brand class. Um, which are, uh, are are very cult-like brands, scored very very high, um, and had a very good um, you know story in the one-to-one interviews, um, but just haven't quite hit the same sort of stratospherical level that uh, the other uh, uh, the, the cult brand categories have. So we just want to give them an honorable mention. So in total, there'll be 12 brands represented. There'll be 12 representatives from those brands, usually the VP, the CMO, or the CEO, um, and they each take the stage um, and, and share their playbooks with the, uh, the attendees. Um, you know, we, we cap the attendance at 1,200, um, and uh, we host it in uh, the, one of the most beautiful places in the world, in, in, in Banff, Alberta, um, in the Canadian Rockies, uh, in, in a destination that is essentially a 130-year-old castle carved in the side of the uh, Canadian Rocky Mountains. Um, so, anyways, we are now in a place, we actually just announced two of the eight call brand honorees today, so uh, I'm pleased to say that um, the Los Angeles Lakers and M&M's um, uh, have uh, been the initial announcements for the first two call brand honoree class for 2019. Oh, that's pretty awesome. The Lakers just got a new team member. I went to my first Laker game about a few months ago. It was pretty fun. Yeah. 
Perfect. So, I mean, there's a lot of information there. If you have a company, you really want to go out there and you want to try to achieve that cult status, uh, that book six will really give you the roadmap on how you can really go out there and put yourself into the position to be nominated. Now, let's say someone goes through all these sequences and they hit that story phase, that personal story that you talked about. Like, what kind of key things do you think really stick out and make one, uh, one company's story more um, interesting than the next? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the process and the society as they do these interviews, you know, one of the things that um, I see as an outsider in that process that's pretty consistent um, is that there is some um, uh, opportunity or, or there's, a, there's a thread of um, perseverance involved. And so one of the things that we know about cult brands is that there is courageous decision-making that happens um, on the brand side. And so there's a moment in time or, or there's a pinnacle or there's a, this area or, or uh, this situation of tension where, um, you know, despite the, um, the, the environment around them or the things that were happening, they, 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 they proceeded uh, with uh, the direction or strategy or the thing that they knew based on the decision-making that they were doing as an organization and as an individual um, that um, they needed to, to, to follow through and that it had some really positive impact on the way that the brand was either perceived or performing. And so pretty consistently we're seeing courage um, as one of the themes that uh, comes out, um, you know, uh, a lot of these brands that, uh, you know, are being represented have been around for a long time, but some of them are very new as well. And so there isn't really any consistency from an operational or a geographical or a, or a, a financial or, a, or, organ or organizational. So there's no size or number of employees or revenue, et cetera. Uh, but courage um, is, is a pretty consistent theme all across the board. And that, that doesn't mean recklessness, because obviously if you're reckless, then you're, you're putting the business at risk. But um, we, uh, we celebrate two things. One, um, obviously the status of the brand, um, but also the courageousness of the individual that's making the decisions. And so um, this is as much about the brand leader as it is about the brand. Um, we, we promote the brands in the initial phases because those are the things that are most recognizable to people outside. Um, but as we get to the dates and um, closer to um, the actual summit, we start to personalize it about the individual that um, is actually representative of the brand. So the VPs, the CDMO, the COO, whoever is actually going to be on the ground and who has been profiled, um, you know, the, the, it, the story becomes about them as much as it does about the, the brand itself. So there you have it. It's two different components. It's not just your brand itself and what your brand is doing, even though that, that's a huge component to it. It's a perseverance, the courage, the stories behind your team as well. That's really what's going to help you go from just being a regular company to potentially becoming a cult brand. Bradley, thank you so much for hopping on and sharing these um, cult insights with us. Um, once again, you could always head over. It's, uh, is it the gathering or cultgathering.com? It's, it's cultgathering.com, C-U-L-T-G. A-T-H-E-R-I-N-G.com. And you'll have all the information there. Uh, if you want yep. to register for the next conference that's coming up this February, you're more than welcome to. Uh, I'll probably be there, so you'll probably be able to see me. And thank you yeah. so much, everyone, for tuning in today for another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree. Uh, we appreciate you being here. And uh, once again, you can find me at Mr. Leonard Kim on Twitter. And thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for making us part of your week. Listen for Grow Your Influence Tree with Leonard Kim every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Stand out, stand apart, and become a top influencer. We'll see you here next week.